0: Hey everybody, this is Matt with the Curbsiders. I wanted to make you aware that the audio for the intro and outro on this episode, we had a little bit of a recorder fail, so I am using audio from our backup recorder, which is not the high quality audio you're probably used to hearing on this program. That being said, that only affected the intro and outro. The majority of this interview, which was done with Dr. Andrew Bolton live from ACE, is using our normal high quality microphones and for the future episodes we should be back to our high quality recording please bear with us for this episode i think the audio is at least passable thanks and i just wanted to let you know that up front oh and also the interview with dr bolton kind of jumps right right in there we missed recording the normal upfront questions cuz i kind of pulled him in from the hallway at ace and uh it kind of starts mid conversation but I hope you enjoy
1: it. What's this bandage over the patient's toe? And he said, oh, the patient told me he was cutting his nails and it just bled a bit. So I said, I know that National Health Service is short of money, but surely we can afford to remove it and put a new dressing (laughs) on."
0: Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Mm -mm. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham hello, and Dr. Paul Williams. Hello. Hi, Paul. Paul, we didn't forget you tonight.
2: I'm thrilled.
0: (laughs) I want to start off, as our new trend has been, reading an email from... From John, bed. John is a family medicine resident and a PGY1. He says, hi guys, my name is John, oh, and, hello, John. <laughs> and I'm going to be an intern at a rural family medicine residency in, in a state, in a Southern state, Alabama. There we yes. go. I wanted to thank you and your team for taking the time to organize this podcast. I've been using Evernote to take notes on the podcast so that when a patient presents in clinic, I can quickly pull out facts and recommendations from your show when I go and talk to the attendings about a plan. I've been able to develop quite a database and can't wait to bring this practice changing knowledge to the residents of Alabama.
3: And for the brain holes.
0: Yes. Uh, so thank you, John, for your, your nice email. I'm glad you're finding the show helpful. The other thing I wanted to address up front here on the show, we did have we've had a, a multiple comments from listeners saying, "Hey, sometimes you guys say physicians. I'm not a physician. I listen to your show. I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm a physician assistant. I'm a student." Uh, we are so happy that we have listeners that are at all from all different backgrounds and. We will try to make an effort to call you curbsiders or, uh, Stuart, what were your other suggestions? I
3: offered a curbside click, the curbside collective, or I couldn't think of a third one. Okay.
0: Well, the, so the yes, we are glad that all of our listeners, will, we can call you curbsiders as well, since we're all out here just looking for information from our experts. Curb and uh, we, we are glad that, that everyone, that we have people from all different backgrounds. Uh, guys, before we get on to the main interview here with Dr. Bolton, which was done at ACE, uh, I wanted to see, do you guys have any picks of the week?
2: Well, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of things. Um, I actually, thanks to your interview, um, went to the trouble to actually link up an article that actually Dr. Bolton referenced that he was an author on in the Journal of Family Practice, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but it's how to do a three-minute diabetic foot exam. Um, so, as I'll talk about, probably the most important part. Is actually examining the foot and not just sort of letting the patient in the room with their shoes on and this sort of gives you a, a Structured quick approach to do a, a thorough and comprehensive get the history look at the foot um, Do your examination and then counsel the patient on things and it's it's, it's a nice succinct concise um, Review of how you can do a quick foot exam that is also not sort of doing a disservice to the patient So I would recommend that I'll, I'll do something clinical for a change. Hmm.
0: Yeah, Paul. I, I'm shocked. I don't know. Yeah, I've watched a bunch
2: of terrible movies this week, so I'm not going to subject you guys to those. We could ask about that.
0: I watched uh, I watched Sing Street, Paul, which you recommended. That was a good recommendation. So I will I will also recommend that to the audience. But that's that's actually not what I wanted to uh, recommend this week. What I wanted to recommend, I, I'm sure our audience has heard of Khan Academy, K-H-A-N Academy. This is a, a guy who, I think he was some sort of a banker type. Uh, sorry, Sal Khan, if that's not what you were, but he was tutoring his cousins online and then somehow this went viral. And now he has this huge academy, which is, he's got TED talks and everything. What I think a lot of people don't know about it. They do have medical stuff on there too. So let's say you wanted to review the heart sounds. You forget what an S3 is or an S4 is the pathophysiology, not saying that's happened to me recently, but uh, you can go on there and they have it's it's very nice it'll have a physician or or somebody explaining it and they Remember will basically ah, yes stir it <laughs> they they'll have someone explaining it and they will it they draw it out too on like a some sort of a blackboard type virtual blackboard and uh we link to that for our hyperaldosteronism episode because there's a nice summary of the renin aldosterone pathway it's nice. so that would be my rec- recommendation Khan academy if you want to review any medical pathophysiology. That's a nice visual video, kind of
3: audio video source. Stuart? Yeah, so my pick of the week is a, uh, a paper that was initially published by the American College of Physician Executives, now known as the American Academy of Physician Leadership, in 2014, the uh, title of which is The Value of Physician Leadership. And it goes over the uh, uh, essentially what makes a physician into a good leader. So what characteristics makes men into a good, good leader? And then it looks at the different hospitals that are run by physicians versus not run by physicians and shows increased productivity and satisfaction. This is probably going to be More generalizable into healthcare professionals versus non healthcare professionals. So, if you have like a a medical administrator who is not a physician or provider versus uh, a a medical administrator who was a physician or provider, understands what it means to be at the ground level and they're able to enact changes that don't necessarily undermine the ability to provide high quality, trusted value care or high value, trusted care, high whatever. I think we know what you mean. Yes, thank you, Stuart. It's
0: all the good stuff. I
2: think you should keep trying.
0: Let's, why don't we introduce, why don't we introduce the topic? Please, let's, let's. I was at ACE and I was looking at the list of speakers. Dr. Andrew Bolton was one of the speakers giving a talk on the diabetic foot. And I thought, I would like to learn more about the diabetic foot. Hmm. And uh, this is, this is what this discussion was about. Dr. Bolton is a professor of medicine at the University of Manchester. He's a consultant physician at Manchester Royal Infirmary. He is the immediate past president of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes from 2012 to t- 2016. He is currently president of the Worldwide Initiative for Diabetes Education. He has a special interest in diabetes and its complication, complications and serves as the director of the Dialects, the Diabetes Lower Extremity Research Group. He has published over 300 peer-reviewed papers and received numerous awards for his efforts, Thus, we are delighted to bring you this conversation with Dr. Andrew Bolton, where we pretty much talk about the diabetic foot exam, diabetic foot
3: ulcers, and diabetic foot infections. And I hope you enjoy it. And compared to other uh, discussions on the diabetic foot examination, this one is definitely an ace in the hole.
2: (laughs) The brain hole. (laughs) I think I just aged three years. (laughs) <laughs>
0: so i'll be doing a foot exam on a patient and all of a sudden i put the tuning fork on and the patient you know maybe they say they felt it on one side they didn't feel it on the other side but they were thinking they might have been guessing and same well, they're thing they're getting with the bored with it you they're thinking
1: about who's <laughs> going to win the baseball match <laughs> right
0: right Okay, so our diabetic foot exam, so we're going to do... Very the...
1: simple. You can do a three-minute foot exam. We published that a few years ago.
0: What, what was part of that, the three-minute... Uh,
1: while, while you're doing the exam, you just ask the patient, you know, is there a history of any neuropathic symptoms? Is there a history of claudication? We obviously don't ask in those terms, but that's what you're asking. Uh, and, and then look at the foot, fungal abnormalities, fungal nail infections, as I said, clawing of the toes, small muscle wasting, high arch, prominent metatarsal heads, callus, these are all telltale signs. And then just a, a tuning fork or a filament, probably two tests. The, the neurologists always say, you know, you always do a second test to confirm the abnormalities. So I would say we put in the comprehensive diabetic foot exams, two exam, a filament, vibrating tuning fork. If you've got a biesthesiometer, you can use that. That's an automated vibration, a pin prick. very simple stuff. It doesn't take, you know, to feel the pulse and don't start saying, well, it's reduced or it's slightly reduced. If you can feel it, it's either normal or it's absent. Right, dichotomous variables are much more uh, reliable. Yeah.
0: I, uh, feeling for pulses, the dorsalis pedis pulse, is one of my least favorite things because sometimes you're like, is that
1: my pulse that I'm yeah. feeling or is that the patient's pulse? Um, most patients, if they're neuropathic foot, the f- pulses are bounding because they've got release of arterial tone because they've got sympathetic neuropathy. Interesting. So you get increased blood flow to the foot in the absence of peripheral vascular disease due to neuropathy, autonomic neuropathy, and the foot's warm. And we described a sign, I think it was in 1983, we published it, where you've got distended dorsal foot veins. And if you lift the foot, they remain distended because you're getting functional arteriovenous shunting because of this loss of sympathetic tone.
0: Huh. How do you counsel patients? So when you identify these patients that have some of these findings, abnormal findings, how do you counsel them uh, that they have to take care of their feet?
1: I think we talk about, as Dr. Paul Brand first described in leprosy, they've lost the gift of pain. Pain's a damn nuisance until you've lost it. You know, I've talked to patients with leprosy in the old days when they had them in Carville, Louisiana, the leprosy center in the States, and they'd say, I'll do anything to get the pain sensation back. And, of course, if you've twisted your ankle, you'll say, I'll do anything to get rid of the pain sensation. Right. So pain is protective, and it's the loss of pain that leads to the many uh, disastrous problems we see in the diabetic foot. So we needed to understand. And, you know, they don't understand what neuropathy is. They lay patients, persons have a feeling it's all due to vascular disease, blood flow. And they say, well, my feet are warm, which they are because they've got sympathetic neuropathy. They're warm because they've got increased blood flow. So they can't be at risk. So we describe, you know, it's like a light bulb and the wire's broken so the light goes out. Use simple things that the patient can understand to describe to them what neuropathy is because they don't understand nerve damage. They understand vascular disease because... The, the cardiologists, the lipidologists have done a good job. People will take a statin. They don't feel any better because they're frightened of heart disease. But people aren't frightened of foot problems because they say, well, the foot doesn't hurt at all. Right. And that's the problem. What are you
0: doing when you start to notice uh, a patient has an ulcer? Who is who's involved in that care team?
1: I think that the most important is to have someone that knows what they're doing and they're interested It's all very well saying you have to have a team of orthopedic surgeon, vascular surgeon, podiatrist, physical therapist, diabetes specialist, nurse, educator. It doesn't matter how big or how small the team is as long as A, they're working together as a team all giving the same advice and B, they're interested and knowledgeable about the diabetic foot. So podiatrists are key and we're fortunate in my country and your country we have podiatrists. The vast majority of countries in the world don't have podiatry. You no, know, uh, I was recently in India, and I think they've got one or two podiatrists trained overseas.
0: If you see a patient, let's say they come in, uh, you you notice a new ulcer. It it doesn't look like it's grossly infected. Um, what what's your what is your basic workup going to be?
1: I, I think the key thing is has the patient lost the gift of pain? And I, another clinical sign: if you've got a hole in your foot and you walk into the clinic and you don't limp, you must have neuropathy. Right, <laughs> right. It's very simple. The tests just confirm it. If you had a hole in your foot with sort of a pus coming out, you wouldn't be walking on it. But these people have lost that protective sensation. So, uh, you know, a quick assessment of the wound. Is it clinically infected? If it is, we debride the wound. It's what you take off the wound that matters more than what you put on. People say, you know, you go to a meeting like this. If it was all on the diabetic foot, you'd go to the exhibition hall. It'd be full of... People saying this is the dressing that will heal your foot ulcer. If you want to wipe the smile off the rep's face, you say, okay, where's the randomized controlled trial evidence? They say, oh, we've got a case series. That doesn't tell you anything. We need evidence. So, the only, there's very little evidence in the diabetic foot, although we've helped to increase it. And the best evidence is for offloading. So, uh, as they did in leprosy, you've got loss of feeling. So, you put a, a cast on, and that redistributes the pressures under the feet so the patient can ambulator and as you say in american we say walk uh they can walk or ambulate but they can't pressurize the ulcer and we did we did a randomized controlled trial in miami and because we're given a, rem- a removable cast walker like a air cast boot or something a dh walker something like that and we know in the laboratory that does just as well in offloading the ulcer but the patient's come back with the same ulcer six weeks later and put them in a total contact cast, they can't remove it.
0: <laughs> That's right. The so compliance we did a study.
1: issue. <laughs> we did a study in Miami, very simple. Uh, it was published in Diabetes Care 2005, if I remember. We randomized about 40 patients with new plantar classical neuropathic foot ulcers. We randomized them to a total contact cast or a DH walker. We gave them, that. we wrapped some scotch cast around it so they couldn't remove it. And the results are just as good. <laughs> and David Armstrong in Tucson did the other study with the uh, the uh, total contact with the removable cast walker one group had the removable cast walker the other one had it with a wrap around it and of course there was much better healing in the patients who couldn't take the boot off so it's a very simple approach that's got randomized controlled trial evidence that it works for plantar neuropathic foot ulcers there are lots of expensive treatments out there but the evidence base is very weak
0: so the I, I want to kind of recap what you said and then and move on to just a little bit of a discussion of antibiotics. So you, you told me you got to remove stuff from the wound,
1: so you're talking about debridement? Debridement, sharp debridement. A podiatrist can do that down to healthy bleeding tissue. Mm-hmm. And you said often... Because callus, we showed, increases foot pressures. Okay. So often a patient will say, I'm going to sue that podiatrist. He calls me ulcer. I came along. The patient was had an ulcer, but it was hidden by callus. <laughs> So I rarely do legal cases, but I will always defend a podiatrist on that because they exposed the ulcer, they didn't cause it. The callus caused the ulcer. It's like walking on a stone in the foot. Right. So So it's what you take off the foot. You take off the callus and then you take off the pressure by putting them in a, a, a cast.
0: And that uh, that's something that I do in in my clinic. Uh, well, let's say I work at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, which is a fictional place. I say I work at uh, for purpose of the air. But at Cashlack, when I see a diabetic patient with a with a callus, I will I will remove it with a sharp curette and kind of take it down to what looks like healthy tissue, and then tell the patient to keep an eye on it uh, to to prevent that. So you so you do the debridement. You said we offload. And what is the next what is the next step? Let's say we think the patient needs antibiotics, or how do you decide if they need antibiotics?
1: Despite all the advances with PCR and everything, we still use in the Infectious Disease Society of America, led by my good friend Ben Lipsky, clinical assessment of infection. So if there's erythema, purulent discharge, heat, you know, the usual things, rubor, dolor. Mm-hmm. Dolor there isn't often because yeah. they've lost the gift of pain. Uh, but if there are signs of infection, then I would do a debridement. There's no point in taking a superficial wound swab, complete right. waste of time. You know, you'll grow half a dozen organisms, <laughs> and most of them will be present on our feet. <laughs> doesn't mean they're causing the infection. So you take a deep specimen, not a swab, a deep specimen, send it to the laboratory. If there's suspicion of infection, you start them on a broad spectrum antibiotic. Now you're going to ask me which one, and there is no evidence to support the use of any particular antibiotic. The only trial I'll quote to you, because some people say, well, oh, the patient's got a foot ulcer, they must need antibiotics. The only decent study in that area was done by a a colleague of mine from Germany, and he took patients with clinically non-infected ulcers and they put them on Augmentin or placebo. And there was no difference. So there is evidence that you don't need to use antibiotics in non-infected ulcers. Now, commonly used uh, 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 um, antibiotics would be uh, Augmentin or coamoxiclav, which is amoxicillin clavulinic acid. Or clindamycin is still a good drug. People are frightened of it because they're frightened of uh, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. But this was the first drug to be reported with it. It's actually worse on other drugs. Mm. Uh, But people are frightened of clindamycin, and that's a good drug still. Uh, We use quite a lot of that. If there's a a more serious infection, you might want to use a combination such as flucloxacillin, amoxicillin, and metronidazole until you get your uh, uh, specimens uh, microbiologically assessed.
0: Right, so you're doing the debridement, you're taking uh, from whatever you, you're, then you're taking the sample. base
1: of the wound, yes. a bit of tissue, send that to the lab quickly, don't let it sit around. Mm-hmm. You know, and then if the microbiologist is good, he'll be interested and get back to you quickly. If you get back in a day or two, you can start broad-spectrum antibiotic. And then if it shows it's you know, 100% staph aureus, not MRSA, but MSSA, then you go with flu because you found the organism.
0: And flucloxacillin, is that like a dicloxacillin? Yeah, yeah, or...
1: we, we call it fl- Yeah, okay, dicloxacillin, actually. I think
0: we're getting the yeah, European the, yeah, versus just... the American. Uh... Yeah, okay.
1: Common language split up by the ocean. <laughs> right. Okay. And what about duration of therapy? How do you decide that? Um, there are, again, no good trials. Uh, I would say that for the average, uh, we use the University of Texas quite appropriately here, devised by Larry Harkless, David Armstrong, and uh, Larry Lavery, the wound classification system. So superficial would be grade 1. Grade 2 is deeper but without bone penetration. 3 is bone penetration. Then you've got A, no infection, ischemia. B, infection, C, ischemia. D, both. So if you've got someone with, a say, grade 2B, which, which would be quite a deep ulcer but not osteomyelitis uh, with infection then usually, I would say, usually 10 to 14 days, but you assess it clinically at that time. Mm. Now, there is evidence now from a randomized controlled study from Spain just a couple of years ago that if you've got localized osteomyelitis, say, in a a digit, then these do quite well on antibiotics alone. Equally good to surgery. If you've got more extensive osteomyelitis, perhaps with septic arthritis, then you probably need a surgical approach as well.
0: And the, and for the osteomyelitis, proven it's going to be longer for yeah, six yeah. weeks. Yeah, uh, We used or... to
1: say eight to twelve weeks, but now there's been a trial from France that shows that six weeks is probably adequate. Okay. But then again, you need to assess and look at X-rays. We've we've serial X-rays are useful. They're not expensive, uh, and we've seen remineralization and, and healing after treatment of antibiotics and osteomyelitis.
0: Do you find that you're needing to order a lot of MRIs or or can you get by with plain x-rays? Plain clin- x-ray
1: is still a most useful test. Okay. And we use we do do some MRIs, uh, some CTs, but the majority of cases we use plain radiography and you can learn so much from a plain radiograph of the foot. But the key thing is to repeat it regularly. Mm-hmm. It's not no risk to the patient uh and it's looking at change and of course as you know the development of osteomyelitis, radiological changes can be delayed by up to two weeks after it actually uh, starts. Okay. How about so you
0: you put the you get the X-rays? Do you also check any blood markers like ESR, CRP?
1: Um, these can be helpful, but of course there are many other conditions that patients with diabetes, if they've got foot problems, have often got renal problems, uh, and these can affect uh, protein loss and so on, can affect some of these tests. So if they're sky high, that's helpful. Okay. If there's sort of grey zone, it's not particularly helpful.
0: Yeah, like so many tests. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, it's still a good clinical assessment. It's the most important test.
0: Is there a particular case that that you can point to, maybe a case in recent history uh, you can de-identify it that that might illustrate some of the points and and yeah, kind of drive one. home?
1: I'll tell you what. I'll present it. I think I'm presenting it this afternoon. I'll, I'll have to see what what slides. This won't I air put until <laughs> after that, so that'll be okay. I think I'm presenting. Um, yeah, this is a guy. A classic. He came into hospital uh, before a public holiday weekend, so he came in on a Friday, like before Memorial Day. So, dangerous time to come into hospital. Sure. He was on dialysis, peritoneal dialysis, uh, and he came in with what was we would say to be a PUO, what you would say to be FUO, fever of unknown origin, we sort of pyrexia. <laughs> so, the renal team did everything: you know, lots of uh, culture of the peritoneal fluid, scan, CT, MR. Uh, multiple scans of the heart to make sure there's not uh, any abnormalities and echo and so on and they couldn't find the cause of this infection so because it's a holiday weekend of course he was Monday uh, was a holiday so he started on broad spectrum antibiotics, intravenous insulin had all these tests done over the weekend and eventually they asked the diabetes to team to see him on Tuesday so I came along to see him and the houseman or the intern said he was FUO uh, so well What's this bandage over the patient's toe? And he said, oh, the patient told me he was cutting his nails and it just bled a bit. So I said, I know that National Health Service is short of money, but surely we can afford to remove it and put a new dressing (laughs) on if it needs to be. I removed the dressing and it's florid osteomyelitis. Wow. So this is because of the loss of the gift of pain. But the houseman hadn't examined the patient. And thousands of pounds or even more thousands of dollars of useless tests that weren't needed were done when the obvious s- sign was there if you'd looked, examined the oh. patient.
0: I don't envy that house staff. I I, I,
1: I took him and said, look, this is FKO, <laughs> fever of known origin. You didn't find it.
0: <laughs> okay. I think he's still alive. So we, <laughs> so we won't, uh, we'll, my listeners will not make that mistake. They will certainly, certainly look for it. Is there a couple take-home points or is there anything I haven't asked you about that, you, that you're going to highlight in your talk today that you think is important for our listeners to know?
1: I think the most important, another a, a tip, if you've got someone with a plantar ulcer and they come in smiling into the clinic, not limping, they must have neuropathy, whatever your tests show. If you had a hole in your foot, you, you wouldn't walk across the floor. You'd be limping because it hurt. So again, it's clinical observation. We do not need expensive equipment to examine, the, to diagnose a high-risk foot. He's absolutely right. So remember the simple clinical observation. You don't need more than a few minutes to say, is this foot at risk or not? Uh, And when Paul Brand was asked when he, he was a missionary, he worked in India in leprosy and later here at the Carville Public Health Center for leprosy that then was, he was speaking to the American College of Medicine and he was asked, what's the most important thing we can do to reduce amputations in diabetes? Of course, being in America, they were expecting some expensive scan or new radiological technique. He said, the most important thing you can do to reduce amputations in diabetes is every time you see a patient with diabetes, remove the shoes and socks and look at the feet. And that's still true today.
0: You, you kind of made me think of something. I see onychomycosis or tinea ungum, however you uh, call it, and I see dry skin. Do you aggressively treat that in your practice?
1: And if there are fungal infections of the nails, uh, I think the treatment is actually worse than the condition. <laughs> Good podiatry. Uh, some of these uh, topical applications may be helpful, but you know, the, the antibiotics, you have to take them for a year, the antifungals. And they have side effects, so um, it, it's often a sign of risk. The dry skin, the flaking skin, is a sign of autonomic neuropathy, lots of sweating. And the, the warm, dry foot is the out-risk foot. All right. Well, this, this was great.
0: Thank you. It'll be on iTunes. Lots of people will hear this, sir. Right, and well. uh, I think it'll be helpful because you gave a very clear message and that we have lots of patients with… That's true. especially here in texas yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah
1: okay thank you cool
0: thanks and we're back yes after we're we're still recovering from that that (laughs) terrible pun that that led us out of the intro paul anything specific you wanted to highlight i can kind of walk us through some some things that i wanted to to bring up if not
2: no i mean he he made a lot of probably after the fact obvious points that just didn't occur to me like he made that great bit about if a patient has a hole in their foot and they walk into the office without a limp they probably have neuropathy like it's that should have that should be just glaringly apparent but I never thought about it exactly in those terms and then I think like I referenced up top it's the temptation just between time pressures and maybe even lack of comfort is to even just defer the diabetic foot exam and maybe even just do the podiatry referral but it's you really are obligated to know your patient's Um, At least uh, just a quick look at their feet and just make sure that they take their shoes off and do it every single time. So, I mean, those are the the one interesting point, the one I think really, really important point I took away.
0: And I think as far as examining the foot on every visit, which is recommended by uh, diabetes care, the American Diabetes Association, they, I think the way your practice is set up, I mean, if you're, it depends on where your patient is when you go to get them. Like if the patient is waiting in a room for you, it's easy for whoever put the patient in the room and did the vitals to say, please take off your shoes before you're seen. But a lot of the times if that doesn't happen, it's on the provider to remember to tell the patient to take their shoe off and they might be telling you about right.
3: their other 10 complaints. So. By the time I get my patient back to the room, it's probably already 10 to 15 minutes within the appointment. Right. And, and that's it, because of logistical issues.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It
0: It is, it, it is important though. And I, and I think that, you, you mentioned this three-minute diabetic foot exam. I wanted to highlight at, at, at a bare minimum what you should do for for the foot exam. The, probably the parts are, the, the big first part is the inspection, and some things that he mentioned here on the inspection looking for, is, is the person, is there sweat on the foot? I had not really thought about this before. I certainly noticed when people have dry skin, but loss of sweat causes dry skin, causes cracks in the skin, and is a pathway for infection. And that is a sign of, potentially a sign of diabetic autonomic neuropathy, which I see it all the time. I'm like, why do all these right. people have terrible dry feet? And it's it's an autonomic thing. Uh, so definitely be looking at the skin in between the toes. Mm-hmm. Ch- Look at the check the line. nails.
3: Look for the hairline. Right. Yeah. Look at, uh, what, 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 what exactly do you say about the about the treatment for nail fungus that's worse than the... Uh, than the actual net <laughs> Yes,
0: itself. I, I think in, in 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 the standard internal medicine clinic, I feel that most of my patients are too sick for me to put right. them on a 12 week course of whatever conazole you want to use, right.
3: and right, so, right. so
0: I'm not really doing it very often. Right. I I tell patients to try Vicks Vapor Rub for 52 weeks, and uh, because no <laughs> <'Cause
3: laughs> no one's, no one's going to stick to that. So yeah, <laughs> well, you didn't do 52 weeks.
2: Your
0: feet race, will, you did will probably 57. smell if you don't mind the smell of That's menthol. Why you still have it. Yeah, your feet will probably smell better. But or I think personally,
2: you can just wish real hard.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> click your heels, and then what about the neurological examination? So typically, when I, whenever I do a mini CEX with a resident or with a medical student, what I find them doing for the diabetic examination is such a shame because they'll walk in there, they'll do a monofilament, and, and that's it. So it, it, I don't even know if they're doing a visual inspection because when I ask them about the, about the, the feet, you know, they're not able to give me a nice description of what they saw. So I assume they're not doing it. So all I'm seeing that them do is the, the, the monofilament. And when they do it, they're either doing it too hard or doing it too soft. They're not doing the appropriate um, uh, amount of pressure. And then they're stopping at the monofilament, not doing any other neurological examination. So, so let's just, talk let's, about the monofilament yeah. and how to do it. So you want
0: to hold the, the monofilament, it's a 10 gram monofilament. It's applying a standardized amount of pressure. So you want to hold it perpendicular to the spot on the foot, and you're gonna press it until it
3: bends yes. and hold for one second. And you want them to give you a simple yes if yeah. it's if it's positive. And what I've so there's a couple of, of videos that you can watch on YouTube that they're everywhere. I think they, they probably get their information from this this article. They recommend four different spots, actually. They recommended on the, the distal portion of the first toe and then in the, uh, underneath the first MTP, third and fifth MTP. And then you detail how many of those they were not able to say yes to and then document that for, long, for a longitudinal purpose and also to assess for the absence or pres- presence of, uh, of uh, neuropathy.
0: Right. And with the monofilament, you're basically testing for what they call lapse or loss of protective sensation. Right. So if they if they cannot sense the monofilament at any of the spots, then that is an, an at-risk foot. Right. And what Dr. Bolton was saying to me, because I asked him about that, I said, you know, sometimes I get, I can't tell if the patient felt it or not. He goes, if the patient has to think about it, then it's abnormal. They should be able to feel it right away. So the first thing you can do is you can test on their forearm or their upper arm somewhere. And, and and let them know, okay, so this is what you're supposed to be feeling, assuming that their their stocking and glove neuropathy isn't all the way, like, up to their elbow. So you can test on the forearm or, or the upper
3: arm. And I always like this patient's though, that you, you take it out and you start, you start hitting it. They're like, yes. And they just kind of randomly say, yes, 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 yeah. yes. Like, how am I even touching your foot?
0: Right. So so I, I guess the point is, if they miss any of the spots, that is an at-risk foot. Right. and And you can chart that as loss of protective sensation. And that's... Uh, that's, that's my read of it, yes. and we've, we've linked to some articles here in, in the show notes that you can, that you can look at. So,
3: so here's a question for you. If they have loss of protective sensation on monofilament, do you have to do the, the vibratory sensation, the 128 hertz? Or can you stop I, there?
0: I would do it anyway. It's, it says you're supposed to do
3: two tests in most of these things. I wanted to talk about the… Right, but, but the idea of doing the two tests is because there are 10 to 15% of patients with a normal monofilament exam who have loss of protective sensation. Mm-hmm. That's why you do it, in order to capture those, those patients. So, that's you, I should, so I, we should I, stop. I'm not. I'm it not, seems, I'm not saying to stop it. Yeah. I'm just saying that, that that's the purpose of doing it. Yeah. Now whether you're going to do that or not, maybe they 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 have really really bad vibratory sensation. Maybe they've got B12 deficiency on top of that because mm-hmm. of malabsorptive mm-hmm. issues at that point. Right. But uh, you know, I, I would still recommend doing both. I'm just saying that um, the purpose of of doing that ex- additional test is to capture patients who have lost. Uh, uh,
0: I see. Yes. So to recap, you're gonna first inspect the foot, nails, skin in between the toes, uh, hairline. You're gonna do the, the 10 gram monofilament test in the spots. And if you, depending on what you read, it could be anywhere from eight to 12 spots. Mm-hmm. The point is that you're checking, that, that you're checking in a standardized way and, and tracking it. Then you're gonna do, it, we talked about the 128 Hertz tuning fork. That's the tuning fork with the two round heads on the top. It's low C. And, and what you're gonna do is hit the tuning fork and again, there's many ways to do this one. I think probably the simplest way is to hold the tuning fork uh, on the round part between your two fingers on the tip of the patient's toe and ask them if they can feel it. If they can't feel it, it's abnormal. They should be able to feel it as long as you, with their toe as long as you can feel it with their fingers. And if they can't, then that's an abnormal test. And that's, that's the way that they may recommend doing it in this article written by Dr. Bolden it appeared in Diabetes Care in 2008, which we'll link
3: to. Yeah, but don't don't bang that against your, your heel heal your hand like a Ringo Starr.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you're, you're recommending they don't hit it as hard as they can. Yeah. So it, like... Because
3: you, you don't want the person in the room next door to say, "Oh, I hear the 28. 28-
0: yeah. Or yeah, they can 28- actually is... if you hit it so hard that they can hear it, that probably confounds the well, test. Well, it's
3: not just that you'll be sitting there forever waiting for it to go away. Okay. So the three minute examination is turned into like a ten minute examination. Right.
0: Now there there are some other fancy tests. I think that those well, are this... not
3: fancy tests like checking their pulses.
0: Yeah, so that's the third part of it. So okay. we talked about the skin, we talked about the neuro, and now we're talking about about the pulse exam. And on the pulse exam, Dr. Bolton, I liked his. It was just a, it was either a zero or a one, it was an on or an off. <laughs> right. So,
2: yeah. I love the binary approach to the, the pulses. That's perfect. Yes. So... But if, then you have the mat problem of feeling your own pulse. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I think that it's, it should be obvious if you could feel the patient's pulse. I, I was being a little bit... Uh,
3: no, no, no. You were being modest. I, I have that problem too. Yeah. It's okay,
0: so I, I'm pretty sure if you if you keep saying like am I feeling that is that my pulse it's probably absent and you should probably get an ABI which is the the next comment to make all the all the recommendations are if if you haven't if the pulse exam is abnormal you should get ABIs and if the ABIs are abnormal then you should be referring this patient to vascular yeah. surgery for just kind of uh, follow up. indefinitely and
3: and there are other surrogate markers that i would mentioned before like the hair growth line where Mm -hmm. where is that at where is it stopping do they have do they have hair on their toes um or is it is it going up their their shin and then also looking at temperature so check uh, any any loss of temperature sensation uh one thing that we didn't mention was the msk exam that's actually part of their three minute uh, examination that they have they have a portion on the msk which is looking for full range of motion and obvious deformities yeah it's pretty you know, obvious,
2: there I right. it. So I, I, what I'm hearing is you should probably look at the foot? Yeah. Yes. Look okay, at cool. the foot. Cool, cool, cool. And document it.
0: And one other thing that, that Dr. Bolton said that I wanted to highlight just because uh, I, I, I love physiology, and this is something that I, I didn't know about the physiology of this. He says that patients you have, so this is if a patient does not have peripheral arterial disease and they just have diabetic neuropathy, they might have bounding pulses because the the tone is the tone is abnormal. they have their their autonomic tone is abnormal, so what they get is they get arterial to venous shunting at the level of the capillary. So you're going to see the blood is going to rapidly go from the artery to the vein, and you're going to get bounding pulses in the foot. what's and and the the foot veins may be distended, but what's interesting about that is that because it's bypassing the capillary, there's no exchange of oxygen, so there's going to be local tissue ischemia, and that is an at-risk foot. So if you, if you go to feel someone's pulses and it's somebody with terrible diabetes and obvious neuropathy and their pulses are bounding, that's why. It's not, it's not because their, their blood vessels are necessarily in great shape. It's, just, it's, it's a sign of their autonomic neuropathy, which I thought was cool. I, I had never heard that before so we've done all this let's say the patient comes in and they actually have a foot ulcer or a foot infection how do you tell if the ulcer is infected i think this is another part that we we kind of uh we we did talk about with dr bolton but i just wanted to kind of hammer it home here basically you're looking is there is there erythema is there pain is there an exudate or or purulent exudate any of that kind of stuff is going to suggest that the foot is infected and if it's infected then you're going to need to get someone else involved to help out with this because these the infected ulcers are going to need debridement. You're gonna, so you're either going to want a podiatrist or some sort of a surgeon that can help you with this, or someone with just wound care expertise. I we we've talked about this, guys. How we want to get a wound care expert on the show just to teach ourselves about it because personally, I don't know much about wound care or as, not as much as I would like beyond like treating my kids when they when they hurt themselves. Hmm. Uh, so You're to I, do that? I think the IDSA guidelines from 2012 are a great starting point and I'll link to this as well. But the IDSA, if you haven't checked it out, they they have these pocket cards that you can get online and you can flip through them for free online or you can order them for a fee. But they, they have a very succinct kind of visual representation, either either figures or tables of their guidelines and it really boils it down well. So you can look there. And it'll tell you how to kind of classify the diabetic foot in- infections and how to work them up. Yeah. Anything that you guys wanted to to add? Uh, yeah.
2: In? So the last point of the examination, or at least the three-minute exam, and I think you want to touch on this too, is the education of the patient on what to do for their own feet. Yes, Paul. So yes. things like looking at your own feet or if you can't do that for whatever reason, have a family member doing it and keeping things dry, changing your, your shoes and socks um, after baths or exercise. And then... Um, proper footwear. Like the number of patients I have with wildly uncontrolled diabetes and diabetic foot complications who wear flip flops into the office, I just find staggering. But I, <laughs> but just education on how that can potentiate and worsen potential foot problems. And then how, how do you guys handle your your education of your of your patients about care of their feet?
0: I do. Uh, the, the other thing I tell them, everyone le- loves to dig out the corners of their nails, which is just yes. a terrible <laughs> idea. Like right. usually I,
2: with like a screwdriver or something yeah, horrible.
0: yeah or or they dremel tool down their their fungal nails, right. which is just <laughs> insane, yes, yeah, so if if they're cutting their nails, you have to tell them to cut the nail straight across they shouldn't cut it they should cut it, so it's just at the level of where the so it doesn't go protrude out from the skin, but it's just at the level of the skin if you were to drop like a a plumb line down from the nail, it would just touch the front of the toe, the skin at the front of the toe. And they shouldn't dig out the corners of the nail. If there are sharp edges, they can file them down. I I think that's one of the biggest areas I see people getting into problems.
3: Right. Yeah. Well, just not the the issues that I have with most of my patients is, is simply just not doing any kind of foot inspection. And so they don't know what to look for. They don't know what to look for when it comes to callus formation, when it comes to skin breakdown. They don't know how to look for interdigital maceration, lacerations, ulcerations. Um, just like you said with the flip flops, I've had several diabetic patients come in. They have a nice little macerated uh, interdigital web space in the first web space because of their flip flops. So, you know, there's a, a lot of just simple education. It doesn't take very long to educate, maybe a minute at most. I think it's actually what the three minute examination says is a minute to educate. Um, and if you need any assistance to, to, for further education, uh, at least in our clinic, we have uh, like disease managers that can sit down for one-on-one education. But you can sit; you can actually give them a uh, a handout that you want them to explain and go over with the patient. Um, at least for us, that's helpful. But if you don't have that, just if you if you have your favorite diabetic foot examination handout, just go over that with your patient, and potentially just that alone is going to save limbs and save lives.
0: And you're reminding me that Dr. Colburn the great Dr. Colburn Mm -hmm. has provided us with the diabetic foot exam that they do at his clinic. Uh, And we will, we can link that in the show notes there. And y'all are welcome to repurpose that for your own clinics. And that's something that at least at Dr. Colburn's clinic is performed by a a technician who is trained in that and kind of over overseen by, in his case, the physician. And uh, that, I think that would be helpful. And that'll kind of recap a lot of what what we've been talking about and what you should be looking Absolutely. for. Absolutely. So that'll be that that handout will be in the show
2: notes. Absolutely. Yeah. Colburn's worked his way back in. I really don't care for this. <laughs> he's just Absolutely. he's just so helpful, Paul. I mean I well, can't... I've got my eye on you, Colburn.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: he's not as funny. It's okay.
0: He did he did write in some nice comments Paul on our on our website and uh, he, he but he did say he was gunning for
2: your job so well, of course, of course, all course right he <laughs> hopefully he gets more money <laughs> yeah
0: you know I was uh, I, I was gonna try to get into the diabetic foot infection thing a little bit we did talk about that with dr dr Bolton and I'm just gonna refer you to the I'm gonna refer you to the IDsa 2012 guidelines and there is a pocket card that you can look at, which boils it down to the visual representation, which is tables and graphs. It kind of tells you who's at risk for MRSA, who's at risk for Pseudomonas and which agents you can choose. I, I think it would be boring for us to to recap that. And it's it's it would probably add another 20 minutes to the show, which I think would just be redundant to some extent. So, I think so too. So to, to recap, you look mean, at your patient's feet. Yeah. So you're not that intern who I, I'm sure that Dr. Bolton was leaving out some explicit <laughs> comments that he made towards that person. That was quite unfortunate. <laughs> Could you imagine being that person?
3: <laughs> uh, I'm so
0: sorry. I to, it sounded like it was an entire team of, it was one of those, uh, yeah. what do they always hold up for us at Cash Lack, Like the Swiss cheese bottle of yes. like errors where like. That
3: was like a black hole model. <laughs> Big black hole.
2: Yeah. And we can certainly omit this from recording, but it reminds me of one of my favorite jokes, which is how do you hide a $10 bill from an internist? Yes. <laughs> I, I you put a advantage. bandage over it. <laughs> <laughs> How do
0: you have to be a classic
3: surgeon? You can't.
0: I don't think we need to cut that, Paul. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's fine. Guys, anything else before we be before we go? Not for me. No, I think I'm, I
3: think I'm good this time.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we will go to the outro. a whole one. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. Mm-hmm bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicious. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter And Stuart is still due to make an appearance on that. We tried to hook it up for the May newsletter and it didn't happen, but I promise in a future newsletter, at the very least, Stuart's floating head will appear.
3: It may happen.
0: And in this newsletter, I will recap the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice that we learned each month on the show. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, so please, please, Subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Give us your feedback. You can email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto.
3: I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham.
2: And I remain Paul Williams. Well, hello, Paul. Oh, Good. hi, <laughs> <laughs> Good Bye. night. Good night.